Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing a series on the Old Testament books of Kings. In today's talk, we're going to look at the dubious, divisive legacy of King Solomon and the dreadful power of a bad precedent. We are in 1 Kings. Our focus today is going to be chapters 12 through 15. So let's see what has brought us up to this point. We have just completed our overview from the book of Kings of the life and legacy of King Solomon. The one king who truly did rule over a united Israel and who truly did rule over an Israel that was living in the promise, in the fullness of the promise, the material promise of the promised land that God gave to Abraham. Ruling territory that covered from the border of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River in the north. And he was a dominant figure in that region, in that era. Solomon is known for what two things? Okay, first of all, wisdom. And, and the temple. And in a more expansive sense, he's known for his glory. Both of these things are referred to by Jesus. The interesting thing, particularly about Solomon's glory, is how fleeting Solomon's glory was. Solomon was so glorious that in his day, gold was so commonplace that silver was worthless. And gold was used as decoration for buildings. I mean, it's just... It's absurd how prosperous and how wealthy and how glorious Solomon's kingdom was. Jesus, interestingly enough, uses Solomon's glory as the lesser when he makes a comparison. He said, consider, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. Solomon in all his glory was a lesser thing compared to the glory of one of the lilies of the field. So that's how Jesus compared it. Jesus also spoke in in a comparison of uh, referring to the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And this is a significant messianic statement by Jesus. Because He spoke to the cities that he ministered in the most. And he said, the queen of Sheba came to Solomon and was amazed by him. He said, one greater than Solomon is here before you and you do not receive me. And he speaks of himself as being one greater than Solomon. 
So Solomon has come down to us for, particularly we know him for his, his glory and for his wisdom. His wisdom endured in the literature that he produced and in the, the, the example that he gave us. His glory only endures as a legend. <laughs> All of his glory perished. That is because of something that occurs and is an actually a shocking, shocking statement that appears in chapter 11, verse 6. It is absolute, and this is not what we remember Solomon by, but it is crucial to understanding what's going to happen next. So Solomon, what? Did what? did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That is a shocking statement. That is absolutely something we do not expect to see. We don't do we? Do you remember those words about Solomon? Did you remember that the Bible says that about Solomon until I brought this to your attention? Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that is a significant statement for several reasons. One of them is what happens because of Solomon what he did. What did Solomon do that was evil in the eyes of the Lord? He married outside. Well, okay, he, he did that. He not only allowed the religions, he also he set up the religions and he worshipped idols. And all of these things. He, mar- he married with foreign women whom God had prohibited intermarriage with. God did not prohibit intermarriage with all foreign women, but he married women of whom God had permitted, had prohibited intermarriage. But that was not the sin for which he is called. He says he did evil. He let them set up, he set up for them shrines to their gods. Rather than convert them to his God, he let them set up shrines. He exhibited Tolerance toward them. That's what we're supposed to do in our day, right? He exhibited tolerance toward them, passive tolerance toward them, letting them do their own thing, which tells you he was not really concerned about developing full relationships with them. He brought them in. They had a purpose. Their, their Part of it was political and part of it was just for him. Don't you think that the political part was he, he didn't fully rely on God? That's 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 exactly right. That also shows he was not relying upon God. If you cannot do what God if you cannot obey God's commandments because you don't quite fully trust God's promise, that shows that you're not really relying on God. You're not really fully trusting God. So there was a flaw in Solomon's execution of wisdom. He knew what the right thing to do was. Most of the time he did it. Most of his life he did it. But as things went along, one thing sort of led to another. And I don't think he intended to completely slide. And I don't think young Solomon anticipated that old Solomon would be bowing down to idols. Another thing, though, that this statement is significant for is it becomes a formula that is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Kings where we are going to see kings whose judgment upon them regardless of what their other achievements were whether they were successes as in their politics 
and military expeditions or whether they were abject failures. We have a mixture of both. But if they did what Solomon did, the same judgment is put upon them as was put upon Solomon. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God rejected them. We're going to see that. What I'm pointing out to you is one of the major themes of the books of Kings. And that is the power of precedent. Solomon set a precedent. Now, do you think that Solomon brought idolatry into Israel? Do you think there was no idolatry in Israel before Solomon was, came to his throne? <coughs> I don't think that that's true. I think so, idolatry... Matter of fact, we know, one of the things we know, among those who were, those who were put into forced labor, those who were engaged in forced labor, who were those people? They were not Israelites. They were Canaanite peoples that were still living in the land. That history, you've got to go back to the book of Judges in order to catch. Joshua, yes, but mainly Judges. Why those peoples, why those Canaanites are still in the land? They were supposed to be all gone. They weren't supposed to be there. But when through unbelief, the Israelites failed to continue to wage war against them. God says, okay, I'm going to leave them there. And I'm going to leave them there to test you. Now, most of the time they kept them subjected. They kept them subdued. They kept them in their, in their place. <coughs> They used them from time to time for forced labor and all that. From time to time, some of these Canaanite peoples rose up and made alliances and got together and, and, had, and there were outbreaks against the Israelites who were there, but they were still there. These are the people that Solomon used for forced labor. Do you think that they were fully converted over to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. <laughs> they were still Baalites. But Baalism was an underground religion at that time. When Solomon came in, he opened the door. And he didn't exactly say Baalites welcome, but he brought everybody from outside in. Well, if the princess is allowed to worship, then anyone else is allowed. There you go. Others can worship with the princess if they choose to. And so you've got this precedent. The power of a precedent has been set. And it is not the precedent of David. Well, Gary, like you said, he didn't start out that way. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, in essence, with, if you call it a ministry, when he first started, the young Solomon would not have believed that the old Solomon did what he did. I mean, he didn't start out this, this deal with those intentions, Satan picked him up. So as for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did, the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Where is that book? Gone. But this writer had that book. He used sources. This is one huge term paper he's written here. And he's footnoting the book. That's what he's doing. This is, a, this is a footnote, scholarly style, from that day. Okay. 
we go on. Then he rested with his fathers, was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Um, Rehoboam, we are going to find out if you, if you read in chapter 12, Rehoboam's mother was not an Israelite. She was an Ammonite. Just to let you know. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. Okay, so we've got this accession ceremony. And everybody is going to come and acclaim Rehoboam king. We don't have this competitive thing going on within the family household as to which one of these is going to be. No, no, no. So Rehoboam is gone. And every, all representatives of all of the tribes of Israel are going to Shechem. This is an old, this is a place that it's, it's a covenant renewal place back in Joshua. This is, I mean, and this, this city has a history that, I mean, it's just a, a, a town with an ancient history that Israelites can relate to. Um, and it's, it's just, this is where they're going to go, and this is where they meet, and this is where they're going to have the... And Rehoboam goes in with the full expectation, uh, of, course, of course I'm going to be crowned king. Who else? Well, I'll tell you who else. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen in chapter, oh, what was it, chapter 11? A prophet named Abijah went and uh, found Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam was an Ephraimite who, as a young man rising up in the meritocracy that Solomon, in his wisdom, had established, had become, at a very young age, the head guy over the conscript labor from Israel. Now, the conscript labor was not the same as the forced labor. The conscripted labor, these were people who were said, okay, uh, a certain number, we need laborers of this kind. We've got a quota of people from, from your tribe. You need to supply for so many months of the year that you're going to be working. Now, one of the things was, <laughs> one of the abuses of this was that Solomon was bringing in people from tribes from all over the place to do building projects for Judah. You think that might stir up a little hard feeling, you know, throughout, you know, taking, you know, Texas road money and building roads in Connecticut with it, you know, I mean, that, that kind of thing, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that we've, you know, it's the same. It's not anything new what we have going on today. It's, it's the same. And sectionalism is starting to come up and, and starting starting to move here. So Rehoboam comes, he, he meets there, and they have everybody out there. And Jeroboam, meanwhile, back in chapter uh, 11, Jeroboam had been approached by a prophet who, you know, there's an interesting thing. There, there's some, it looks, in some ways, it looks like when Samuel went to Saul and tore the robe and said, so your kingdom is being torn from you? Well, Abijah takes the, the cloak that Jeroboam is wearing, and he tears it into 12 pieces, and he pulls two pieces out, and he get, and says, okay, this piece is you, these pieces are yours, these pieces are going to stay with Rehoboam. Okay, but God is going to give you this, and he gives him a command and a promise, an appointment, a command and a promise. The appointment is... You're going to be the king of these northern tribes because God is taking them away from the house of David because of the sins of Solomon. But 
Your command is to obey my ways, obey my commandments, do what I have said. And if you do that, I will make your dynasty permanent. You're in. If you will obey me, I will make your dynasty permanent. That's it. So Jeroboam is hiding out because Solomon, once he finds out about this, he doesn't want... For some reason, there's just kind of this deal going on. Kings don't like competitors. Even Solomon. And so Jeroboam has been in hiding. But now, after Solomon is dead, Jeroboam is... They said, why don't you come back and represent us? So Jeroboam's doing that, and he's coming up, and he's standing up, and he's representing. And now you've got an interplay, and there's so much of the interplay here, of the Exodus story. You've got Jeroboam as Moses, and you've got Rehoboam as Pharaoh. And Jeroboam, and they come out with the, uh, with the request that your father put a heavy yoke on us, and now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we'll serve you. And Rehoboam answered, go away three days and come back to me. So the people went away. Rehoboam went to counselors. First he went to his father's counselors. Okay, look at what they said. Verse 6. Uh, said, how would you advise me to answer these people? And they replied, verse 7, if today you will be a servant to these people and will serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Um, the, uh, by the way, that... The word serve, some form of the word serve, the root word serve, shows up four times in that. There, there's just that pattern there in that sentence. So Rehoboam then turned to the young guys that he'd grown up with, the guys he'd went to college with. Went to his roommates and said, what do you guys think? And they said... Tell these people who said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, make our yoke lighter. Tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. I've been looking at the at commentaries and looking at the Hebrew of that, and actually that is a cleaned up version of what they said to say. What they said to say was actually pretty vulgar. I'm not going to go into it. I ask you not to use your imagination. Just trust me on this. The main thing is, Rehoboam decided that his father's advisors were washed up. He needed to really assert himself here and show himself to be a forceful leader. Okay. So we learn a lot about Rehoboam and we learn a lot about his character and we learn that for one thing if he ever read the book that his father wrote he never absorbed it. We never, he definitely never absorbed the one that said a soft answer turns away wrath. But I've seen so many commentaries that are saying well Rehoboam turned away from the wisdom of his father's advisors and turned to the folly of his younger... Well, I'm not sure it's all that clear-cut, folks. Recall the advisors of his father re 
recall the state of the nation that his father's advisors had together collaborated with. Is the nation in great shape right now? Who are these guys? These are the political class. These are the old standard political class and these are the guys, here was their message to Rehoboam. Give them, smooth, give them good words. Talk to them nice. They'll be your suckers. That's what he's telling them. Talk to them nice. Give them the, just give them the old schmooze. Kiss their babies. And then go do what you're going to do anyway. That, I believe, is the undercurrent of the message that they're getting. I don't think Solomon's advisors are all that wise. I think they're just being shrewd. Now, the message that they give, if, they, if, Jer if Rehoboam were actually inclined to do that, to become a servant leader, to become a leader as David was, to serve the Lord his God and to lead the people to serve the Lord their God. And to do righteously. And to back off and to consider, maybe we have taken this wealth and prosperity thing too far and maybe we've forgotten our God in the midst of it. Maybe, but Rehoboam wasn't that way and that's not what he was. Now here's the thing and this is the thing that we need to also see as part of the theme of it. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, uh, this is verse 16, they answered to the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after, look out, look after your own house, O David. This is a song that goes way back, way back. And it's a reminder. What, what is it? To, to, to your tents, O Israel. People didn't live in tents. What it was, was it's a reminder of we're going to be independent again. We're going to be just like we were in the days of the judges. We'll go back to being nomads if we have to. But we're going to go back to, we have, we have no stake in the house of David. This is a song that was written during a rebellion against David late in his reign. And now it's being sung again. Well, that rebellion was short-lived and was quashed very quickly. This, re this rebellion, <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. So, as for, so all Israel, basically what happened was, they turned to Jeroboam and said, Jeroboam, you're going to be our king. And Jeroboam now became the king of Israel. Did he have a legitimate right to be? God made him so. Yeah. But Rehoboam wasn't going to give it up. That's what we have. All Israel. By the way, all Israel means all Israel. All Israel made Jeroboam king. But Rehoboam wasn't ready to give it up. And he still had a constituency in Judah. So, verse 18, and one of the great political blunders of all time. <laughs> this, this cracks me up. It really does. Who is the right person, the perfect person that Rehoboam chooses to go and to reassert 
his royal prerogative to the people who are in rebellion. The guy who is the chief of forced labor. Ah! <laughs> that goes along with his theory that he did, that the advice that he took that was is, that he was going to be the I'm, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be forceful, I'm going to be, I will, I will bring them in as, I'll just, if they're going to act like this, I'm going to just make them all like the Canaanite peoples and, and require them to give forced labor. I mean, talk about re- needing a reality check. Rehoboam has no sense of reality here. He has no sense of what's going on. No sensitivity to what has really taken place. And no understanding of the spiritual decay that his father has brought into this nation. He has no understanding of it because he's subject to it. So what did they do with Adoniram? Well, they stoned him to death. But King Rehoboam managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So, verse 19, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Again, once again, by the time books of kings were written, the kingdom of Israel did not exist anymore. The Assyrians had already done away with him. So, here again, we have a reference to a source that's being used. When all the Israelites had heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called to the assembly, made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Now when it says the tribe of Judah, really and truly it was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Because the tribe of Benjamin had territory that had been essentially absorbed into the territorial area of the tribe of Judah. Also, the tribe of Simeon had for all intents and purposes also been absorbed into Judah. And the tribe of Simeon doesn't really exist as a separate entity anymore. Moreover, the tribe of Levi, we are going to see, remains with the tribe of Judah for a very specific reason. They don't have jobs anywhere else. That's right. So... When it says the tribe of Judah only, and when it says, you know, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, okay, we also, we're expanding that a little bit. The main thing is the northern Israelite tribes all went to Jeroboam and stayed with Jeroboam. (coughs) Southern tribes, even though Jeroboam's been made king, southern tribes don't give it up. They They keep Rehoboam in place. So, Rehoboam, he's still not giving it up. Verse 21, he arrived in Jerusalem, mustered the whole house of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men. Okay, what about the numbers here? That's an incredibly large number. What about the numbers? The word thousand is both a number of a number, but it's also a technical term for a military unit comparable to a regiment, which is a variable size and variable numbering. So when it says 180,000, we're talking about 180 regiments, which may or may not amount to 1,000 men each. Regardless, what Rehoboam did was he mustered together a massive military retaliation 
in order to go and reclaim this. He's still, he's still going to show them who's boss. Now, if Judah can muster 180,000, how many do you suppose that Israel could have mustered? We're not going to go into that because it didn't actually get there. It didn't actually get to that point. The word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. That phrase, the man of God, is going to become very, very significant also in the book of Kings. It marks the man of God. There will be different men of God that show up throughout the books of Kings. But one thing that is going to take place is at crucial moments, there will be a man of God who will stand representing God as a third party in conflicts that are going on. Shemaiah, the man of God. I, I just love that phrase. Because it captures so much. Just meditate on that phrase, a man of God. Of course, it's a prophet. Someone who's been called to do something. Somebody who has been commissioned by God. But it also speaks of the character of someone. After a while, when Elisha comes along, Elisha, who begins as the servant of Elijah, and when Elijah goes up, receives the commission that Elijah had, and then he proceeds. And from that point on, Elisha begins to be called. They stop calling Elisha by his name. They just call him man of God. Mm, what a thing to aspire to be, whatever you're calling in life. He came to Rehoboam and said, this is what the Lord says. Don't go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. He's reminding him something crucial. These are not enemies. They're adversaries right now. They're political opponents, but they are your brothers. Don't fight your brothers. Don't kill your brothers. Go home. Every one of you, this is my do. Then these words, crucial words. This is my doing. Who's doing? God's. This happened because I made it happen. Now, God making it happen, did that mean that God manipulated the choices that men made? No. I don't know the mechanics of the sovereignty of God. You find somebody who does and you'll find probably a heretic. There are things that we don't know and we don't understand. I'm just going to remind you that God is God. And God, being God, gets to do God kind of things. And God, being God, directs history so that the choices that men make, even the choices that go specifically against the will of God, ultimately the results of those choices are turned toward the accomplishment of what God is going to do. And that is the larger issue in the book of Kings because the larger issue in the book of Kings is Christ. Why does God take the kingdom away from Solomon? Because Solomon violated the commandments of God and the law must be obeyed. 
why did God give a remnant of that nation to Solomon's son, even though Solomon's son has an unworthy character? Because God, as a God of grace, has a plan of grace that is going to be fulfilled even though Solomon's son is unrighteous. And even though Solomon violated the commission that God gave to him and sinned. Because of the promise that he gave to David. The reason he gave that promise to David is because through David, the one who would come who would establish an everlasting kingdom. And of his kingdom there would be no end. And his kingdom would be one of everlasting righteousness. And it would never be subverted by evil or sin. He would save his people. Not only from their external enemies. He would save his people from their sin. Because Christ would come. Because Jesus was appointed to come through the line of David. And to sit on the throne of David. Therefore... David will have somebody to sit on his throne, even though some of them are twerps. So, here's how it runs after that. Jeroboam. He begins to do king stuff. He builds a fortress, in, he fortifies Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. So he begins to do that. He goes out and builds up Peniel. Establishes an important city there. And then Jeroboam thought to himself, verse 26, the kingdom now will likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, there's that advice thing again. The king made two golden calves. Who do you suppose his advisors were? You think any of them might have had some investments in the golden calf industry? He said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went as far, even as far as Dan, to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. The festival in Judah, the Feast of Tabernacles, is held in the 7th month. That's according to the law of Moses. Nah, we're going to do it in the 8th month. See, we're going to do it just like them, but we're going to be different and better. And all this he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests on the high places he had made. And on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Do you see what's going on here? Jeroboam is a liberal theologian. Nation, really. I mean, aren't you kind of. Jeroboam is a liberal theologian. 
Jeroboam believes that religion is a tool of human, of the human search for God. And therefore, it can also be used as a tool of policy. We should use religious things to accomplish good ends. We should use religion in order to bring people together and not lose them. We need to use religion. And it's okay to work with, you know, and to change up some of the terms of theology and some of the terms of practice because it is, religion is a human invention. It is the human quest for God. Ultimately, the main thing that's important is that, that we all seek God, isn't it? Isn't the only thing that's really important is that, that we all seek the Lord? And so it really matters just to, I mean, it, it, does it matter what the altar looks like? Okay, so this golden calf thing, we've got a history of that. Why, our ancestors <coughs> bowed to golden calves before. Forget about what the results of that were. Our ancestors bowed before golden calf. Let's make a calf and it's of gold and we'll, and matter of fact we're going to make religion much more convenient than it was because in the old regime that old traditional religion we had to go all the way to Jerusalem to the one altar in order to make sacrifices anytime we needed to make sacrifices we had to travel all the way to Jerusalem if you lived up in the north country if you lived up in Naphtali if you lived up there in northern Dan if you lived up up north of the Sea of Galilee, if you lived up in that place, you had, you had to make an enormous trek all the way south to Jerusalem just in order to present your all. Tell you what, we are going to make it convenient. We are going to set up two major temples, no waiting. We're going to put one in Bethel. That has a good history. This is where the Lord met Jacob, remember? And revealed himself to Jacob. Remember the stairway to heaven? That, that happened at Bethel. This is the house of God. James, Jacob named it Bethel, house of God. We're going to set up a house of God at the house of God. And we're going to put a golden calf here that reminds everybody that God... Well, not that God looks like a golden calf. Uh, I'm sure, but I mean, we're going to remind everybody that we have a tradition here. We have... We have uh, this is, and what, what's the golden calf thing? Well, the... Folks, I'm sorry, there, there's just a connection there with Canaanite religion. There's a connection between, well, I don't, I don't care what they say, I don't care how they rationalize it, there's a connection between the golden calf and the fertility practices of the Canaanites. We're bringing in a precedent. Why is Jeroboam doing this? Because he doesn't believe God's promise. He doesn't think God is able to handle the promise that he made. He doesn't think that God is able to establish his kingdom if I continue to let people go back to Jerusalem. Their hearts are going to be turned and they're going to say, oh, we missed the house of David. And eventually they're going to end up killing me and going back to Rehoboam, that stinker. So Jeroboam sets a new precedent. And it is a precedent that will not be overturned until Jerusalem, until Israel is destroyed 
by the Assyrians. He sets up a rival temple in Bethel, and then he sets up one in Dan. Now, Dan is an interesting location for it, too, because if you look in the book of Judges, a shrine, a counterfeit shrine was set up in Dan back in the days of the book of Judges, and a Levite, a renegade Levite, had gone up there and set up a priesthood to that shrine, an idolatrous shrine. So yes, Dan has a history of that too. The power of precedent. It's a power that works in our own lives and it's a power that works socially. It works individually, it works socially, it works corporately. We've got to beware that all of our precedents follow the Word of God. That every precedent that we set for ourselves is one that is derived from the Word of God. And that we are not doing what we do without testing it against God's Word and His commandments. There is a story in chapter 13, an amazing story. Wish we had more time to get into it in depth. A man of God comes up and in the day of the dedication of this shrine in Bethel they've got this altar in Bethel a man of God comes up to speak and to give an oracle concerning the shrine and at first he's recognized come forward and then he begins to cry the judgment of God against that shrine look at what he says O altar, O altar, this is what the Lord says. This is verse 2, chapter 13. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. And that same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, the ashes will be poured out. King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out to the man shriveled up so that he couldn't pull it back. And, also, and then, what happened? Why, there was faulty construction in the altar. It just kind of fell apart. And the ashes on the altar, you know, which was a desecration, the ashes just kind of fell off there. <clears throat> Spilled out. Well, that did not deter any, anything, but Jeroboam pleaded with the man of God, intercede for the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Well, the point of, the, of all of that was not to cripple Jeroboam. And so the man of God prayed and his hand was restored. But that didn't restore Jeroboam to faith. The king said to the man of God, come home, with, eat with me, give, uh, uh, have something to eat, I'll give you a gift. He's trying to bribe the man of God. Come on, we can be friends. Let's, and, and the man of God tells him, no, I've got a command from God that I come up here, I say what I'm supposed to say, and then I go back a different way that I did not come from, and I'm not to eat or drink anything until I get home. Well, there's another prophet in the land who hears about this and he thought, I need to have fellowship with this guy. I... He was, he's just lonely. And so he, sends, he comes to him and he says, 
come and dine with me. And, and the prophet says, no, I've received a commandment from the Lord. I'm supposed to go straight home. He said, no, 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 no. I'm a prophet too. And an angel came and told me that uh, you're supposed to come home and dine with me. Lie. At this point, the prophet on the road gives in to his hunger and fatigue and disobeys the word that God gave him and goes home with the old prophet. And then God, while they're sitting there having dinner, the old prophet receives a, word, receives a real word from God. It says, I'm really sorry, man. You are not going to make it home. Well, that kind of put a damper on the evening. Guy got up, started on his way, was intercepted by a lion. He was riding a donkey. The lion killed the man, mauled the man, killed the donkey, but did not devour them. And when they came by, when travelers came by, they saw the lion sitting next to the corpses of the lion. You think that put the fear of God back into you if you had lost it for a while? And the old man, the old prophet, took him, had him buried, according to the word that the old prophet gave, had him buried in a tomb away from his homeland and gave instructions to his sons, when I die, bury me with him because what he said is going to happen. Why? Why did God penalize the prophet? Just because he was deceived. That's his business as a prophet, to be obedient and not to be deceived. That was the whole gist of his message. Don't deviate from the command that God gave you. If God's going to change your instructions, he will give you those instructions, not somebody else. And it was the weakness, his, no doubt his physical and emotional weakness, and he yielded to the emotional weakness of the older prophet. And the older prophet, yes, he had some, some guilt there. But God made his point. It's a point that was lost on Jeroboam. What begins to take place is a series in Israel. Jeroboam's line does not last long. And there proceeds to be something, back in the 60s, we talked about, we had uh, the term arise, banana republic. You remember that? Referring, uh, referring to Central American states that seemed to turn over its presidentes and leaders and all that with regular, like once a month, they'd have a new president in, in some country, one revolution after another. That's the situation that you had, the, that kind of political instability in Israel. Meanwhile, in Judah, well, we'll just have to get there next week. This has been the fourth of eight talks on First Kings. Next time, we'll see how one kingdom struggles under the bad precedents that had been set, while the other goes from bad to worse. You've been listening to Insight. I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.